Hello, ladies. Oh, you're so beautiful. Thank you so much for coming today. I am so glad that you are here studying God's Word, and I am glad to be a part of it. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and my name is Deb Haygood. And today we're going to talk about the name of God. You know, names are fascinating. Some are uh, very common, some are very uh, unique, but every one of us has a name. Names um, are how we are known. We're known by our name. I just introduced myself by telling you my name. I didn't say, hello, I am the short gal with blue eyes and bre mostly brown. Okay, a little brown hair. No, I told you my name because that is how we are known, by our names. We all have one. Uh, sometimes we go by nicknames. In my case, my name is Deborah, but people call me either Deb or Debbie. Um, nicknames can be unusual as well. Um, parents sometimes give their children special names or names that they know the meaning of in hopes that they will grow up and be like their name, live out those attributes. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, named her daughter uh, Hallie, and Hallie comes from the word hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. In my case, my name is Deborah, but um, my mom named me that because she liked the nickname Debbie, and Debbie Reynolds had just made the movie Singing in the Rain. So that's how my name came. But I looked it up. Deborah means honeybee. Um, it's the seeker. And so some people say, oh, you're uh, sweet as honey, or maybe some people say you're busy as a bee. So those that know me can uh, decide for yourselves there. You know, some names are very recognizable while others are not. Um, if I say Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George W. Bush, we all recognize those names. We know who they are as present president and past presidents of the United States. We know who they are. And people know them and they act accordingly. So if those three men went into a very crowded restaurant, I feel pretty confident that they were very uh, quickly be able to be seated at a table. I, on the other hand, if I would walk into a crowded restaurant and give them my name, I would have to wait because my name is unknown and so people act accordingly. You know, in William Shakespeare's tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, Juliet contends that names are not important. You might remember that she is a Capulet, and Romeo, who she falls in love with, is a Montague. And the Capulets and the Montagues have this ancient grudge against one another, which does not bode well for their romance. So Juliet has this famous line that she says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So although that may be true, we are going to uh, learn today that God's name is important. In fact, it's extremely important because it not only identifies God, it tells us who he is. It reveals his character, his actions. His name has power. His name reveals God. And God wants us to know him. He wants us to know who he is. And so all throughout the Bible, God is revealing himself to us. 
God wants us to know his name. He wants us to know that he is the creator and the sovereign ruler of the world. He is the loving, merciful, rescuing, redeeming God. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to recognize his name so that we will act accordingly. You know, last week we saw Moses on the move, and today we're gonna see God front and center. So let's turn to chapter six, and let's look at that. Um, You remember last week that Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells him that the God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, in his uh, ignorance and with arrogance and contempt, he says this to Moses. And we almost cringe when we read these words. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord He doesn't know the Lord. Well, today we're gonna see God beginning to reveal himself, who he is to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh doesn't let the Israelites go. In fact, last week we saw that he made their lives harder, much, much more difficult. And so Moses, um, in despair and in confusion, goes to God and he asks him why. And that's where we ended last week. So let's look at those uh, last two verses in chapter five. It's right above six. And uh, read once again that question Moses says to God. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. He says, why, why? And God answers him in chapter six, verse one. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So we see here that God doesn't uh, really answer Moses's uh, why. Instead, he says what, what he will do. He tells them that he will drive them out. Now, we already know, uh, we saw in Exodus 3, in fact, I have this on your verse sheet, 19 and 20, where he tells Moses that Pharaoh will need to be compelled. So it says here, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. In fact, he won't just let them go. He will drive them out. He will compel them. So he said that that's what it would take. And so now God is saying the stage is set for him to reveal his mighty hand his character, his power, his name, so that the Israelites would know who he is, and not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians and the whole world as well. And then we are gonna go on and we're gonna see God answer Moses' why question in another way. Verse two, God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So here we see that God answers Moses with who? Who he is. He says, I am the Lord. Now we know um, a couple weeks ago, Shelley in chapter three told us that when Moses was in the desert, you remember the burning bush, and God comes to him and says, um, go to Egypt and deliver my people from slavery, and Moses kind of stunned, looks around and says, well, who shall I say sent me? 
what is your name? And God says, tell them, I am who I am sent you. I am who I am. And he goes on to say that the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. Now, I am who I am, that's kind of a strange name, and Shelley told us it means the boundless, self-existent, eternal God, the self-existent God. And by the way, Jesus will refer to himself as I am a couple times in the Gospels, but one is in John 8, 58. I have that on your verse sheet. Let me tell you quickly, the Pharisees, the religious leaders had come to him, and they heard Jesus call God Father. That was new to them. So they say to him, well, Abraham is our father. And so they have kind of this exchange of words back and forth. And finally, Jesus ends the conversation by saying this. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They saw that and they knew that he was calling himself God. I am. And so today we see Moses um, hearing God say, I am the Lord. And the Lord there is in all capital letters. We saw that back in chapter three. Now we know when you see the Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, that is the Hebrew name for God that is Yahweh. Yahweh. Now when you see Lord, capital L, lowercase letters, then that is the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. And when you see God, capital G, O-D, that is the general name for God, and usually in Hebrew, it is um, translated Elohim. So Yahweh is the personal name for God. It is his covenant name. It is the special name that links God with Israel and his covenants. It's so sacred to the Jews that even today, some of them will not speak his name. They say Adonai, or the name, in place of it. One theologian, well, first let me tell you, I had an English teacher that bears this out. He was Jewish, and so when he would write on the board a literature assignment, um, like for instance, what part did God play in? He would write God, capital G, dash D. He would not write out the name of God. One the theologian says this, that Yahweh reveals God as the absolute being working with unbounded freedom in the performance of his promises. God is working out his promises with unbounded freedom. He says, I am Yahweh. So what does that mean in verse three when it says here, I am Yahweh, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's the Hebrew word El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now if you look through Genesis, you see Lord in all capital letters. So we know Yahweh was in Genesis. We see in chapter nine, Noah is praising Yahweh. And in chapter 12, we see Abraham building an altar and calling out to Yahweh. So God, what God means is that now he is going to reveal himself more fully. He's more than just the mighty provider and stainer, sustainer, El Shaddai. He is also the personal, promise-keeping God of Israel. He will redeem them. They will better understand more deeply and more fully the significance of the name Yahweh. In fact, everything he will do in the book of Exodus is to reveal more fully what this name, Yahweh, means. Everything in Exodus, all the miracles, all the plans, everything you see, the promises kept, are going to reveal more fully this name, Yahweh.
So let's go on and look at verses four and five, and this is God uh, kind of reviewing with Moses part of his covenant. He says in verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So God uh, established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a promise to give them a homeland Canaan. You remember there was more to that promise. Part of it was to increase in number, and we see that's happened. They are a huge number, maybe two million now. And the other part of the promise was this homeland, Cana. This is promised land. He promised to give that to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their ancestors, and now the time is right. He has heard the groaning of the Israelites, he has seen the misery of the Israelites, and he will keep his promise. He will rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them to the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, one application I see for ourselves in this passage is that uh, because we are all a lot like Moses, we get anxious, we get become confused, we're uh, wondering and we call out and ask God why. And we can ask God why, but he's usually gonna answer us with who, who he is and what he has done. And when we remember who he is, when we learn who God is, when we focus and concentrate on who he is, we can experience peace and courage. Moses needs to fully know God, to depend on God, to inspire these Israelites to move out of Egypt. He needs to know that God is in control. God is a promise keeper. God is powerful and mighty and loving and merciful. God is the judge. God is sovereign ruler. Looking at who God is and what he has done dispels confusion. And it dispels our anxiety. And instead, we have peace and courage. So write down when you learn something about who God is so that you can remember it in those times that are confusing and difficult and anxious. You know, there's many places in the Bible that we see who God is. One of my favorite Psalms is 86, and I'm just gonna read two verses um, on your extra verse sheet that tells us about God. It says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So let's go on and see God's plan revealed. Let me read verse six. <clears throat> Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord Yahweh. Whoa, these are three powerful verses. This is God speaking here, and I feel like we are very close to holy ground. 
First, you probably noticed that there are seven I will statements, and seven um, denotes perfection. And it is also the number symbolic of the covenant. These seven I wills also begin and end with that phrase, I am the Lord, Yahweh, this is who I am, this is what I will do. One theologian says, I am the Lord is a declaration of God's control over people, nature, history, and other so-called gods, and a declaration that defiance is folly. You know, there is no baby when God speaks here. He says, I will. I will, and they all deal with God's covenant promise. He will keep his promise. So the first three I wills deal with God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He says, I will bring you out from under the burden. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And an outstretched arm indicates God's power will be evident. All will see his power, and God will be present. He is going to be involved. The next two I wills deal with his possession of the nation Israel. They will be his people, and he will be their God. And he says, you will learn and know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God your personal God, your promise-keeping God. He wants to be in a relationship with each one of them. He loves them. And we're gonna see this relationship formalized in the wilderness at Mount Sinai um, that will come later on in our study of Exodus. He loves them. And the last two I wills deal with uh, his gift of a homeland to them, the promised land of Canaan. He says, I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you as a possession. Now this promise is gonna take 40 years to uh, be completed because of the Israelites' stubborn disobedience, but their children shall possess it. And then God closes again with that phrase, I am the Lord, Yahweh. He ends as if to add an exclamation point at the end that says, I am in control, and to defy me is folly. These three verses, six, seven, and eight, are really a key statement of intent for the whole Bible story, for the whole rest of the Bible through Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's the great history of God redeeming his people from slavery, and it's God's story for us as well as he redeems us from slavery of sin and death so that we might be his people that um, we will be in relationship with him forever and we become citizens of a new land, of a new world, heaven. He redeems us to be his children so we can trust him to lead us and to love us. God rescues us from sin so that we might be his children. I kind of think of these seven I wills as kind of the future plan, I will do this, but then in verse nine, we're gonna see God's present plan, what's going on right now, so let's look at that. Verse nine, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
Okay, can you picture this in verse nine? Moses, who's called out to God in confusion and sadness, is now energized by these powerful, amazing, enlightening words of the Lord. He must be excited. I think I can imagine that he is overwhelmed and filled with joy and awe. Moses has heard from Yahweh, the Lord. You probably know that feeling, a time when you've connected with God. Maybe it's reading his word. Maybe it's uh, when you were praying one time. Maybe it's singing a praise song, and you feel in your heart, God is real, and I know him. I know the Lord. So Moses goes in, um, and he tells the people these awe-inspiring, courage-building words, and the people do not listen to Moses because of the harshness, the oppression, the pain of slavery has broken their spirit and they do not listen. And so Moses is discouraged and when God says go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses is hesitant and he answers God with, hey, if my own people won't listen to me, how do you think Pharaoh will listen? And once again, he um, throws out that what he sees, greatest flaw, I am not eloquent. You know, it's his big shortcoming in his mind. I uh, do not speak well. You know, how quickly we go from that excitement and zeal as we focus on the Lord to discouragement as we focus on our faults and shortcomings. You know, I can understand the Israelites' broken spirit. Uh, you probably can too. A time when life seemed so hard for you, there's no hope, no light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you were even so broken that you couldn't even call out to God, even if you wanted to. You know, I have a story. When I was a freshman at TCU, and many of you have heard this story. Now, this isn't the hardest thing in the world um, for you. It wasn't really the hardest thing that ever happened in my life, but as an 18-year-old away from home, it seemed very overwhelming to me. I came to TCU. I didn't know anyone in the whole state of Texas. I wanted to get a nursing degree. I thought it was gonna be a great adventure. And about three weeks, maybe less, into it, I was sitting on the bed uh, in my dorm room so homesick that I was overwhelmed with sadness. And I was sobbing. I had my Bible open on my lap, but I couldn't read it. I was sobbing so hard. And a gal that I had met from across the hall, she was a believer, heard me crying, and she knocked on my door, and she said, Dab, are you okay? Uh, is there anything I can do? And she opened the door, and she came in, and I just said, I'm so homesick through my tears. And I handed her my Bible, and I said, um, read something. Now, she was a believer. She was a Christian. And um, I do not know what she read to me that day. But what I do remember is that the comfort and the love and the hope of Jesus came into my heart. And I knew God is with me. I'm going to be okay. He's gonna give me friends, and this is gonna be a great adventure. And so I stopped crying, and I hugged my friend, and we probably went on our way as... Um, only you can do when you're young. But I tell you this story because if you're in a place where you are so brokenhearted that you cannot call out to God, tell someone and let them call out to God on your behalf. And ladies, if you see someone brokenhearted, if you see someone burdened and sad, call out to God for them. 
Maybe walk along beside them or sit by them or um, stand with them. Maybe God will give you a word of scripture to say to them. Or maybe you don't need to say anything at all. Just listen to them. Just listen to them and be quiet. But when you're discouraged, keep moving towards God. If you can't move, then just turn towards God because God is our strength and God is our comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us this. Verses three and four, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I have a quote from Matthew Henry. Now, I love Matthew Henry. He was a minister and he wrote commentaries of the whole Bible in the early 1700s. So sometimes um, his quotes can seem a little old fashioned sounding, sometimes even a little harsh, but they're always so right on. And he says this, by indulging discontent and fretfulness, we deprive ourselves of the comfort we might have, both from God's word and from his providence and go comfortless. Don't go comfortless, ladies. Turn to God. He is our comfort and our strength. So let's go on and see how God comforts and encourages Moses um, now. He's spoken these amazing promises and revealed who he is, but Moses is hesitant. He doesn't feel adequate. So let's see what he says, verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So God says, do it. Do it, Moses. Go to Pharaoh and tell him this. But do you also see the encouragement from God there? He mentions Aaron. He says this to Moses and Aaron. And God had already told Moses that Aaron would be his spokesperson. And I also see in this, these next verses coming up, verse 14 begins a genealogy. And I see encouragement and comfort for Moses in this genealogy. I see it uh, as a reminder of God's plan that uh, from the past. God didn't just come up with this plan. This was God's plan from the past, and Moses and Aaron were included in it. Moses was always part of the plan, and you see this in this genealogy, because right in the middle, verse 20, we read this. Amran took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. There's those names right in the middle. And a little hint about genealogies, uh, many times you will find something very important right in the middle of it. So don't skip over a genealogy, read through it. You'll find something important. Um, this genealogy also serves to give the Israelite lineage of Moses and Aaron. These are two prominent men who would represent the Israelites before Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so this uh, genealogy gives them their lineage that they can go back and trace it to Jacob, 
the grandson of Abraham. And we see that in verse 14 because it says this. We're just gonna read a couple verses. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Now we know that God renames Jacob Israel. So Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. And then in verse 15, it says the sons of Simeon. Simeon was the secondborn of Jacob. And then in verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. And then we see these names and this lineage go down till we come to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron were from the line of Levi. Levi, Jacob's third son. So they can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. This must have been encouraging. And one more thing, this genealogy serves to remind us that God doesn't use perfect people, but rather imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan. When you see those names, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they were Jacob's first three sons. Their mother was Leah. And if you go back and look in Genesis, each one of them did something very disobedient some willful act that was very unfaithful to the Lord. So maybe we're not to be so hard on Moses and his hesitant uh, obedience here. Instead, be encouraged that God uses imperfect people to carry out his plan. Be encouraged that, my, that yours and my imperfections, our flaws, our faults, um, do not uh, keep us from being loved by God and involved in his plan. We've all messed up. We've all messed up. Reuben, Simeon, Levi messed up. Moses is kind of messing up a little bit here. We've all messed up, but God uses us anyway because God uses imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan. So let's go on and um, let's read. Oh, I wanna say, read 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna throw this in here because Paul knew this. Paul had learned this very well. He had asked Jesus to remove the thorn in his flesh, which he saw as his big shortcoming. And this is what happens uh, when he asked the Lord. And he tells the Corinthians this in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he says, but he said to me, this is Jesus talking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan. So let's go on and um, let's look at verse 28. Now, let me say this is a summary verse. Uh, it's kind of trying to get us back, remind us where we were before this genealogy came into view. So verse 28 is a lot like those verses in uh, 12 and 13 that we read. So 28 says, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Here we're gonna see God's power displayed, and first we see 
um, God reassuring um, Moses by saying, I am Yahweh. Remember all that I just told you that I'm gonna do, what this name means? I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And then second, he reassures Moses once again that I have made you like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. Now this he already said in uh, Exodus 4, 15 and 16, and I don't have that on your verse sheet, but um, we heard this last week. If you wanna go back and look at it again, God told Moses that he was gonna make him like God to Pharaoh. He was going to be representing God, and Aaron would be his prophet. Now, a prophet <clears throat> is one that um, is called by God and speaks God's words. Moses was a prophet. God called him to be a spokesman, an ambassador for God, and he would speak with authority and power. But God also appointed Aaron to be a spokesman for Moses. So sometimes um, we see God speaks to Moses and we see Moses speaking those words to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but sometimes Moses tells Aaron and he delivers the message. And the message here is, let my people go out of this land. So let's see what happens in verse three. <clears throat> but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God reminds Moses that Pharaoh will not listen to him. Now, he's already told him this before. Um, God is kind of giving Moses a second heads up here by saying, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then we also see the words, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, Lynn talked um, to us about that last week and what that means. You know, it's kind of hard to really um, understand, but we know that God is sovereign and he exercises his sovereignty by allowing human beings certain freedoms. So it's a mystery explaining the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to everyone's satisfaction. But we know both are true because scripture teaches us. We see here that God is gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. We see at the end in 13 that Pharaoh hardens his heart. 10 times we will read God hardens Pharaoh's heart. 10 times we will see Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's kind of hard to understand. But I think the more important point here is that God will bring his children out of Egypt and he will do it with great acts of judgment, miraculous acts. And some of that is the 10 plagues and we're gonna see those next week and the week after that we're gonna look at those 10 plagues, the miraculous acts of God. Now why 10 plagues? Why 10 plagues? We know that God probably could have, or could definitely have taken the children of Israel out of Egypt with one plague or with no plagues. He could have just overwhelmed the Egyptians and led them out. But if he did that, what would have happened? So let's see verse five, the answer. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among you. There's the answer. God wants not only the Israelites to know who God is, the powerful, promise-keeping, present God, he also wanted the Egyptians to know him, and ultimately, the whole world. God is revealing who he is, and it will take time. 
If it had happened quickly, the Israelites would have forgotten God even more quickly, and no one would have learned much about God, the Israelites nor the Egyptians. So it takes time. It takes these miraculous acts of God over and over again to, for them to learn who God is. He's revealing himself to them. And by this way, there will be no denying the power and the majesty and the presence of God, the sovereign ruler over all the world. The Egyptian gods, and there were many of them, they'll be proven worthless against Yahweh God, for he alone is God. So let's see what Moses and Aaron do next in verse six. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Yay, finally, full obedience from Moses. I love it. Here we see it. You know, it is sometimes very hard to fully obey God. And I have one more quote from Matthew Henry. He explains it like this. Ready obedience is always according to the strength of our faith. Ready obedience is always according to the strength of our faith. God has spoken awe-inspiring, encouraging words to Moses, revealing himself to Moses, reassuring him, and Moses' faith is growing stronger. And now we read, he does exactly what God says. So ladies, if you're having trouble with obedience, um, and God, ask God to increase your faith to give you a strong faith. Study who God is, remember who he is so that your faith might be increased because faith comes first and then the obedience. And by the way, did you notice their ages there? I love it, it looks like it's kind of thrown in. Moses is 80 and Aaron's um, 83. Um, I love that. Our imperfections do not uh, disqualify us from serving God and neither does our age. So just think, what God may have for you in the future. So let's go on, look at verse um, eight. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Here we see Moses and Aaron, fully obedient, come before Pharaoh and his servants, and they do what God says. They throw down the staff, and it becomes a serpent, maybe a cobra, because that snake had special significance in Egypt. And so then Pharaoh calls on his wise men, his sorcerers, they're called magicians, um, to come. And I can kind of see Pharaoh with his arms crossed, looking out, the magicians come in this room and they throw down their staffs and they become snakes. So how did they do this? How did they do this? Well, there's three thoughts on this. We're not sure, we don't know, but from ancient manuscripts we read that there were magicians that did sleight of hand tricks. Now, that's a lot like our magicians today. They're optical illusions. 
Somehow this was an optical illusion. Or another thought is that the magicians knew how to manipulate and hypnotize their snakes. We've heard of those snake charmers. And so maybe they had hypnotized the snake and it was snake and it was rod like it was stiff like a staff and they walked in with it and then when they threw the snake staff on the ground it began to move like a snake. Or a third uh, possibility is that satanic Evil powers made it possible, and that's what is meant by the secret arts. We're not sure how they did it. However, they were able to imitate this sign. But what happens next is quite amazing. Can you see it? They're all looking at their staffs that's turned into snakes, and the magicians are feel pretty good about themselves when suddenly... Aaron's staff snake swallows up all of the other snakes until they're standing there looking at just one snake, the staff of Aaron. This demonstrates God's superior power. And yet we read in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart is hard and he will not listen to them. And so, just what God said would happen has happened. And so how do we keep a soft heart towards God? I hope you had a chance to discuss that in your small groups today. I have a few ways here. The first one is listen to God. We see that Pharaoh didn't listen to God. We saw the Israelites when they were discouraged, they didn't listen to God. To keep a soft heart, listen to God. And how do we do that? Read his word. These are the words of God. He's speaking to us. Talk to God and then be quiet and listen. I have a verse from Deuteronomy. This is um, Moses speaking to the Israelites and he's telling them, verse uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20, he says, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Listen to God so that you might have a soft heart. And second, remember who he is. Write down his attributes, um, memorize verses or underline verses in your Bible. Keep a record, maybe a journal of what you learn about him, what he's done for you or what he's done for others. His mighty, loving, miraculous works. And when you're thinking about and remembering who he is, um, praise him. A heart of worship is a soft heart. And when you're remembering what God has done, thank him. A heart of gratitude is a soft heart. Psalm 30 uh, says this. This is David speaking, verse 11. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. A third way is to obey him. Remember faith first and then obedience. So when we're remembering who God is, our faith grows deeper and we do what his word tells us. We orient our lives properly toward God so that he is at the center. That's obedience. Obey him. And then lastly, I have on there, don't stay discouraged. 
Go to God with your discouragement. Let God heal your heart and comfort you. Psalm 34 says this, once again, is David speaking, and he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. I wanna close um, this morning with words uh, from Moses. He wrote a song at the end of his life. It's Deuteronomy 32. Now, the whole book of Deuteronomy is the Israelites standing on the um, bank of the Jordan about to go into the promised land. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses reminding the Israelites of who God is and what he has done. And so now he's at the end of this life. He writes this song. And I just want to um, read two verses Verses three and four say this. <clears throat> Moses says, for I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So ladies, remember God's name. Remember who he is and act accordingly. He tells us his name. He says, I am the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are a mighty God. Loving, you care for us, you save us, you draw us close to you. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you encourage us when we're discouraged. Thank you for the way you save us, redeem us, bring um, us before you. Thank you, Lord, that you are our God. Father, I just pray you would bless these women that have come. I pray that your word would go deep in their hearts. Father, that we would all leave this place loving you more and knowing a little better who you are. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.